Thanks, Missy. Well, good morning. How's it going, you guys? Happy Thanksgiving weekend to you. Hopefully, uh, you recovered well from all that amazing food. Um, this morning, guys, um, uh, we are getting close here to entering into one of my favorite seasons of the year, a season of Advent. That's what uh, Christians have historically called it, a season of Christmas. And uh, just a little bit later in the service uh, today, I'll talk to you a little bit about that. Um, so this is our final week in 1 Corinthians until the new year. Uh, so next week, uh, we'll be starting uh, just a four-week Advent series in the book of Isaiah. I'm just really super excited about that. Um, and we're going to be looking at the first coming of Christ and looking ahead to the second coming of Christ. This is what we always do as believers every year. But this morning, if you haven't already, uh, please open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, I'll never forget the day. I'll never forget the day uh, when I first uh, put on my, pair, uh, my first pair of glasses, my first pair of glasses, okay? Um, I was Mr. Four Eyes. You know, back then, that was, that was not cool, uh, but now it's cool. Um, I had these big Coke bottle, you know, these enormous glasses. They were not cool, but now that's like the thing. Anyways, um, I entered a new world that day. I, I totally saw things that I'd never seen before, um, like the chalkboard in my teacher's class. Before then, I just was getting bad grades pretty much. You know, I just was not realizing how badly I couldn't see the board, and all of a sudden I wore these glasses like, oh my gosh, this is what you guys have been learning, you know? This is nuts. Um, colors were brightened. You know, when somebody called my name, I had to figure out who they were by their voice. I could just look at them and like see their physical appearance. I'm like, oh, it's you, right? I mean, it was like my whole life began to change. But quite actually, though, nothing in the world changed. Nothing in the world changed at all, right? No nothing changed. Uh, all that changed is my ability to see it clearly. That's the only thing that changed. Um, you see, to see things as they really were uh, required corrective lenses for me, and many of you guys know this. My, my eyeglasses, they actually illustrate an age-old truth. How you view something in life, it'll determine how you approach it. How you view something in life, it'll determine how you approach it. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you guys, when we become followers of Jesus, in a metaphorical way, the Bible shows us that God hands us gospel glasses, and he begins to adjust our sight. And our hearts should actually long for our sight to be adjusted so that we could see the world through his eyes. And I think one of the most pervasive areas where we often take our gospel glasses off, though, is in the area of conflict. It's in the area of conflict. When it comes to the conflicts that you and I experience in our lives, even people we deeply love, we tend to take the glasses off and we view those uh, areas of conflict through different glasses. And so how you view conflict, the glasses you wear, it'll determine how you approach conflict. Now, we all experience conflict, don't we? I mean, it's like so relevant. Anybody in this room not experience conflict? Right? Nobody, right? This is so relevant for every single one of us, okay? We all experience conflict. Some of you are dealing with significant conflict in your life right now as you're sitting here, probably. We all experience conflict. Some of you experience conflict more than other people, there might be reasons for that. I don't know. But there's, but there's different approaches that we take when we have conflict. There's, here's some. I'll just list some out for you. One approach is you might say conflict is okay. That's, that's just the way life is. Conflict is natural, right? Conflict is normal. Conflict is neutral. Uh, some of you might say, well, I have my rights. Nobody's going to step on me. I'm not going to be a doormat to anybody. 
So your approach to conflict is to fight. Uh, maybe your approach to conflict is just saying they'll never change. A person will never change. I give up. I'm out of here. Or maybe your approach is I don't get mad. I get even. I'm coming. I'm coming for you. Maybe you're just a certain person like conflict ruins good vibes. Conflict makes things awkward. So I'm just going to sweep it under the rug. I'm just going to avoid it because I want a good vibe. And that's your approach to conflict. But each approach actually reveals what glasses that you have on and the way that you view your conflict. So let me just ask you this morning, when, when somebody wrongs you, what do you do? When somebody wrongs you, what do you do? What's your natural reaction? How do you respond to that person? And who's influencing you in that way? Like, why are you responding that way? But I think even a more important question would be to ask, well, what does God see when he sees conflict? What does he see? And maybe even more important, what does he want us to see? What does he want you to see when there's conflict in your life? When we wear gospel glasses to see our conflict, I think we begin to approach it very differently than the way most people in the world approach it. And 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is super helpful for us in this way. It shows us how to navigate conflict. And so this will be on the screen. This is our roadmap. Uh, it shows us, first of all, that we need to know where to go for counsel in our conflict. But this passage also shows us that we need to have a category for mercy and not just justice. This, that'll be hard. And thirdly, uh, this will change your life. Um, we, we see in this passage that we should never forget how God has treated us. We should never forget how God has treated us. So the first thing we see is that we need to know where to go for wise counsel. If you want to look with me at this in verse 1 again, I'll read through verse 6. It says, uh, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels how much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle dispute between the brothers? The brother goes to law against brother, and that before others. Uh, guys, if you remember, I mentioned this last week, but in John chapter 17, when Jesus is praying his famous, really lengthy prayer called the high priestly prayer, he prays this. He says about his followers, people who are going to follow him, people like you, follow him today. He says, I don't desire to take them out of the world, but I'm sending them into the world. Jesus' community, which is what we call the church, is supposed to be a vibrant presence in the world, but the world is not supposed to be a vibrant presence in the church. And that's what we've been seeing in 1 Corinthians. In other words, the boat is supposed to be in the water, but the water is not supposed to be in the boat. And the water has been spilling over into the boat in catastrophic ways in the church in Corinth. And what we see here in these six verses is how the church is dealing with conflict. The way that it deals with conflict, it's letting that water spill over into the boat of the church. Now, it's actually super helpful uh, to point this out, but William Barclay, he's a famous uh, New Testament scholar from Scandinavia. He's very old. He's very helpful in his commentaries uh, with historical and grammatical comments. But I would actually warn you about his theological comments. They're actually pretty dangerous at times. 
Uh, I just say that because I know his commentaries are easy to get a hold of, and in case you're reading one of his commentaries, I just be aware of that, okay? Uh, but nonetheless, he's helpful with historical and grammatical comments. And uh, he points out here that for Greeks, the law courts, which here you have two Christians taking each other to court to sue each other, he says the Greeks in law courts, these were primary places for them to experience entertainment. So it wouldn't be like abnormal to basically, um, if you had a day off, to go out to the Greek courts and like just watch some conflicts, you know? And we're kind of like this actually. I don't know if she's even on anymore, but Judge Judy, like we have all these shows. People sit down. I've never been into that. Maybe you're into that. That's totally fine, I guess. I don't know. But we like, we'll be entertained, you know, by like watching people in court and just seeing people air out their dirty laundry and their conflicts. We're like, oh, this is great, you know? And we just sit down, we're entertained by it. And so this is exactly what the culture was like in Greece at this time, is they would go to these places to actually be entertained. But their society was also like ours in different ways too, because anything that was ever done against them, what they would do is they would seek revenge. They they would seek justice. They were like so quick to sue each other for anything that was wronged by, you know, to them about. They would want some sort of payment in return for some offense that's been done to them. And to be honest, we're not that much different. I mean, I love that we live in in a country where we have rights and stuff like that. But oftentimes, we have no category. We're more uh, American in our citizenship than we are Jesus' kingdom citizenship type stuff at times. Because so often, we, we have our rights, which are awesome, but we're never willing to have a category to even lay them down. We were so quick to sue and attack and seek revenge, these types of things. It's the same culture. This is the culture that the people in the church lived in, and the water had spilled over into the boat so much so that they were drenched in this water. In other words, they wore the world's glasses when it came to conflict. And therefore, they were going outside the church to settle these disputes. So Paul points this out in verse 1. He says, when anyone has a grievance against some other follower of Jesus, you're going out to people who aren't even believers. They don't have like a Jesus-like worldview, and you're asking them to litigate your offenses against each other. And we saw this back in chapter 2. He's saying you're leaving the church, but he's like, and the church is the very place where the people are supposed to have the mind of Christ. Do you remember that? He talked about that. He says, we have the mind of Christ. So this has been happening, and Paul says to them, hold up here a second. What does he say in verse 2? He says, do you remember who you were? Do you remember who you are? He goes on, he tries to give them the perspective on who they are and as believers, what their future is. And he says in verse two, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? This phrase, do not know, actually occurs six times in this chapter. And every time it's mentioned, it's trying to signal to this church, hey, you should know better. You should know better. He's telling them who they, who they are. So do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If you remember last week, uh, you're probably curious right now because you're like, hey, I thought in verse 12 of chapter 5 it says we're not supposed to judge outsiders. We're not supposed to judge the world. God judges the world. So why two verses later is Paul saying Jesus' followers will one day judge the world? It's kind of confusing. That's a great question, right? The difference is that in chapter 5 verse 12, he's talking about the here and now. In chapter 6 verse 2, he's talking about the eternal future sense. So he, he's speaking of the final judgment one day when, when Jesus returns and Jesus will judge the entire world and he will make all things new. Right, he's talking about that day. 
So the idea that Christians, or the word that's used here is saints, that they will assist in the final judgment, this isn't like Paul's idea. Jesus talks about this multiple times. If you want to look it up in your own time, Matthew 19, 28, Luke 22, 30. It even occurs in the Old Testament, this whole idea. And Paul even goes further in verse 3. He says, do you not know that we are to judge angels, which is like the highest class of created order, basically. So that's what he gets at. And so here we go. I'll, I'll be real with you. I've studied this like all week. And I come to this idea, and if you're anything like me, you're like, what does that even really mean? You know, just being completely honest with you, I'm like, I don't even know if I want to do that, you know? And uh, the Bible, though, it doesn't give any explanation for this. It just says it's true. It assumes it is fact, and it states it all over the place. That as believers, this is the idea that one day you're going to be called upon to do jury duty in God's supreme court. That this is going to be the reality, and this is really important for Paul's argument. Why? Because it's here to make this huge point that in verse 3, he says, if that's your future reality, if you're going to do jury duty in God's Supreme Court one day, and you're going to have to make these like eternal type decisions of some sort, right, then why in the world, how much more then can you not just handle matters pertaining to this life? That's his whole point. He's setting up his point. This, this phrase in verse 3, the latter part of verse 3 it just means the ordinary things of common life. And so Paul says, if that's your destiny, to sit on jury duty on God's Supreme Court one day, then couldn't you settle smaller matters amongst yourselves? Why can't you do that? It'd be like this. If you're, he's like, if your destiny in this room is to be a math professor, he's like, couldn't you like help a first grader with addition and subtraction? Or if, you're, if your destiny is to open and run like a successful daycare, couldn't you like take care of one of your own kids? Or if your destiny is to be like a brilliant financial advisor, can't you manage your own personal budget? That's basically what he's saying. See, if this is your future, and this is how you're behaving currently, he says, then shame on you. He's not trying to rub their face in their sin. He's trying to wake them up, basically. So the church should be a place of reconciliation. It should be a place and a people of litigated wisdom where you could go to anybody who's a believer, and since you have the mind of Christ, that person could speak words, eternal-type words, Jesus-type wisdom into your situation. So this is why Paul pleads with them in the next verse. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle dispute between the brothers, which is simply a way of just saying believers? Is there no one among you who can do this? Is there no one wise enough? And realize this, you guys. He's not asking this because there isn't anybody wise enough. He's like, you guys don't have anybody? He's like, the whole point of him asking the question is you do have people. You should have a lot of people. You should be all wearing your gospel glasses, basically. Right? You should have a lot of people. You have the mind of Christ. You have the gospel. Just put the glasses on. So here's the question, you guys. When it comes to your and my conflict, because yes, this is about like, do not take somebody to court and sue them as a believer. Practical application, number one, right there, okay? But even more so, he brings it down just to like everyday sort of stuff of life. He just says the common things of life. So especially that would include your conflict, wouldn't it? So the question is this, who do you go for counsel in your conflict? Where do, where do you go for wisdom? When you have a grievance, which is the word used in verse 1, when you have a dispute, which is the word used in verse 5, 
But beyond that, when you just have anything, you need wisdom and help for a matter pertaining to life. This is what he says in verse 3. Who do you go to? What counsel or wisdom are you receiving? There's multiple levels of application to us. Honestly, um, the first one, just most basically, I already kind of stated it, but is what a horrible witness it is. This is like his big deal. What a horrible witness it is to take your junk out into the public square and flaunt it to everyone to be entertained by. May it never be that you would take a person that you're going to spend eternity with who is your brother or sister in Christ and to go and sue them that you might somehow win in your mind. May it never be. But number two, we cannot forget, guys, that people who claim Christ, who have been redeemed and born again by Jesus, and people who have not in this world, we have a very different perspective on what wisdom is. Do you remember this from the first couple chapters? And how often, I've been thinking about this this week, how often do we relegate only our spiritual lives to the wisdom of other people in our faith communities. When it comes to our spiritual lives, we go to each other for that. But when it comes to how to handle conflict, how to raise children, how we should view success, how we should even view ourselves, how to deal with various issues, how to, how to handle money, how to view sex, I mean, the list could honestly just go on and on. Why do we run to people in the world for counsel who literally don't counsel you with an eternal perspective? Well, they, don't, they won't counsel you with gospel glasses on, right? Their response will be coming from a material, temporary worldview and not account for eternity by any stretch of the imagination. How much more do you and I run to trends in psychology, for example, instead of poring over the pages of the Bible which stand the test of time? Right, how much more do we listen to our news feeds or our favorite celebrities' voices or the crowd, which those voices change all the time? How much more do we listen to those voices and run to people who don't claim Jesus, the very one that this world was made by, right? And, and the very one who this world revolves around and has to give an account to, the very one that we all say is the most significant voice and influence in our lives? Why would we run to someone or some place or some book and, and receive that counsel over someone who is at least pursuing Christ and asking for his wisdom? Is there no one wise in our midst? Wise in terms of gospel wise? Well, of course there is. Guys, wisdom is a community effort. It's a community effort. So who do you go to help you in your conflict, to guide you in any matter pertaining to this life? Who do you go, who do you go to? One of the most practical reasons why you should go to other believers to help you with this and not the courts or simply some psychologist to help you in matters of this life is because the world will never tell you what to do, uh, no, never tell you to do what comes next in your passage. It will never tell you to do this. And if someone actually tells you to do what comes next, you'll know that they are someone who is growing in their gospel fluency of sorts. Because what does it say in verse 7? He says... To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? You know, why not? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. I mean, have you, have you ever had anyone say that to you? Right, when you wrong somebody? Has anyone ever said this to you? 
like, you, like someone wrongs you and you're like, they're just like, yeah, why not just be wronged, you know? Why not? They, they stole money from you? Why not just be defrauded? Has anyone ever told you that? I mean, think about that. That's pretty insane, isn't it? Right? Why not just suffer wrong? Why not rather be frauded? Why not that? Why don't you just do that? How can this even be encouraged, let alone be said, you know? Because if you even take your brother or sister to Christ to court in order to sue them, Paul says, even if you're right, even if you're right, even if you win, taking them to court is a defeat in and of itself. The the verdict doesn't even matter. The accuser and the offender already lose when the conflict can't be resolved within the confines of a faith community and the confines of love and grace. If reconciliation doesn't happen and all that happens is lawsuits and fractured relationships, then both parties lose in the kingdom of God. Why? Because the injury is no longer done to an individual, it's done to the entire body. It's done to the entire body. You see, when you go sue somebody, the lawsuit's focus is you, the person suing, trying to gain a verdict in your favor. You're trying to gain victory. But Paul says, if you're a believer and even if you're victorious, you lost. You're already defeated because you just hurt the whole body. You hurt the whole See, God says that his goal in your conflict isn't you winning. It's not you winning. You don't need to win. Like we see this in sports all the time, if you like sports at all. You know, like you have some athlete who just is a pretty good athlete, right? But they want their statistics, right? They might even make all-star teams, all that sort of thing. But they play to the detriment of the team. The team will never make it. The team will never win the championship because they're too selfish, They might win, right? They might get some award. They might get the statistics they're longing for, but it comes to the detriment of the whole team. It's kind of the same idea that Paul's getting at here, right? We need the right goal in conflict, and the goal here in conflict is the health of the family of God. He says, therefore, real victory in conflict all of a sudden becomes not a personal thing. It becomes a corporate thing. The real victory might actually be obtained in choosing to be wronged or cheated. That's where victory might come. We're losing is actually winning. See, when our gospel glasses are on, mercy, guys, actually becomes a categorical response in our conflict. Like mercy becomes an option and something you might actually want to do to extend. So the question is, do you have a category for mercy and not simply justice when you're wronged? Like, if you claim Christ this morning, is, is that like a category for us? When someone mistreats you, even if someone defrauds you, like in the case like this, even if you're in the right, do you have a category for mercy? Let me just ask, how in the world could you ever respond this way? Like, how could this ever be a response that you would actually have? Like, how could you respond this way? But maybe not even that, why? Why in the world should you ever be motivated to potentially want to respond in this way? Like, why could Paul say this and we could read this and maybe not completely go, that's insane? Like, how, how could this be? Let's just think. Let's, let's look on the screen here. Isaiah 53. This is talking about Jesus. That's a great example to us. It says, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, 
so he opened not his mouth. This is one example. See, was it not our Lord and Savior himself that suffered wrong? Although he could never have been more in the right, right? And yet he endured that for the sake of other people. He endured that for the sake of you, if you know him this morning. Was it not Jesus who didn't defend himself? But instead, he gave up his life, he gave up his name, gave up his reputation, even his own vindication. He gave it up into his father's hands saying he'll take care of it, right? He was defrauded and wronged and didn't seek to validate himself, didn't even seek to prove he was right per se. He, he didn't seek to get back at anybody. Was it not Jesus who was severely misunderstood in his life by many people that he, he embraced that? People didn't believe he was who he says he was. In fact, I was just reading this week, uh, just in my own time, that there was people again who, who said that he accused him, that he worked for the devil. People accused him of that, yet he was the son of God. Was it not Jesus who endured injustice, who didn't just stand up for his rights, but instead laid them down? If this is our Lord, if this is our Jesus... Right? If this is who he is, if he is our standard and our hope, if he is the one that we want to be like one day, that when we grow up, it's our longing to be like him. Right? And if he didn't function in the world as if his name mattered ultimately, if he didn't function in the world in a way that material wealth mattered to him, if he didn't function in the world in a way that he was here just to be served by people, but instead he came to serve and he gave up his life as a ransom for many, then why won't we ever think, why won't we ever even encourage one another to ever suffer wrong, to ever be defrauded for the sake of peace, for the sake of his witness, for the sake of the entire whole? This is the name we claim, the God who saved us. So be on the screen Dave Harvey wrote a great marriage book. I, um, I assign it to every premarital counseling couple, but um, he writes this in there. He says, mercy transforms our motivation from a desire to win battles to a desire to represent Christ. It takes me out of the center and it puts Christ at the center. That's what mercy does. That's what mercy does. I think a beautiful example of this it's a very famous story. You've probably heard about it. This will be a picture on the screen, a famous, famous picture. But in May, uh, May 13th, 1981, Pope John Paul II, um, he was crossing St. Peter's Square, and he was shot four times. Do you remember this? Some of you were like, not even a thought yet in life. But nonetheless, you maybe have heard about this story before. He was shot four times by a Turkish guy named Mehmet. He was shot twice in his lower intestines. Uh, he was shot in his left or his right arm, and once on his left index finger. So that sounds really painful, right? Shot four times, right? Talk about conflict. Want to talk about conflict? Guy shoots you. That's kind of like conflict, isn't it? Just a little bit, maybe? I don't know. Okay, nonetheless, okay, he survived. And this guy got a life sentence. But the Pope actually asked all Catholics to forgive this man. It's pretty radical in of itself. The Italian court sentenced this guy to life, but in 1983, so two years after this event, um, this pope actually visited the man, Mehmet, in jail. This is the picture that you see here on the screen, I believe. Yeah, this famous picture. And they had this conversation, and he extended forgiveness to this man. They became friends. He walked out of this place, friends. And then finally in 2000, this same pope asked for a pardon to be granted to this man. And during the course of this whole time, this guy, Mehmet, became a believer 
And very powerfully, I think, just the incredible example of reconciliation. In 2014, this guy I met actually returned to Rome to visit this pope's grave. And he laid two dozen white roses on this guy's grave. So here goes a man trying to kill this pope. This pope's response to that sort of conflict is mercy. It's to extend forgiveness. And what is the result in this guy's life? It's salvation. And here you have a guy who goes trying to shoot somebody to visiting that person's grave to honor them with roses, all because of this response of mercy. You see, he gets it. His desire wasn't to win. It extended beyond himself, and it put Christ at the center. See, the gospel gives you new categories for conflict. It tells you a different story. You're actually introduced to a new way of living, a third way. It's not a defend my rights and my honor way, and it's definitely not a sweep it under the rug kind of way. It's a third way. It's a completely third way, a way that moves towards another person, not away from them, right? And when you're moving towards them, it's not moving towards them in order to strike them or in order to defend yourself. It moves towards the person in conflict in order to do them good, right? To shower mercy. It's a third way. And the coolest thing is, you don't have to pioneer this, right? You're not, you don't have to be the one who walks through a forest with a machete pioneering this path. I don't know about you, but every time I go hiking, I always think about that. Do you guys ever think about that when you go hiking? You're like on this nice trail, and you're like, this is a little bit of a difficult hike, but nonetheless, like, I got this nice little trail here. Every single time I hike, I'm like, man, I can't believe somebody, like, made this trail. Like, how do you do that? Like, I would not have the energy to do that. But somebody paved the way for me to actually go on that hike. If you go to Multnomah Falls, it's like even paved, right? Like, really paved. Like, that's pretty nice, right? I didn't do that. All I have to do in order to see the sights at the top of the waterfall is what? I just got to walk the path. But somebody else paved the way, right? You don't have to pioneer this, this path at all, do you? You don't have to blaze the trail. Jesus paved the way. If I responded with mercy, then in conflict, I'm not a hero, I'm just following in the steps of Jesus. That's all I'm doing. So right now, maybe you're a little bit convinced, like, I should probably have a category for mercy and conflict if I'm a Christian. It's logical because Jesus is my example. But I just can't bring myself to emotionally get there. I just can't do it, right? It might sound right, it might even sound possible, but you're like, this is just not for me. I don't know how I can actually do it, right? Uh, just briefly, I was thinking about this week. We have a conflict in our house all the time because I pretty much refuse to eat any food that's past the expiration date, okay? It's like an ongoing conflict. I'm like, I'm going to get sick. I have it like embedded within me that even if it's like on the date or the day before, I'm like, I don't know, right? Anybody else with me in this, Right? Thank you. Okay, I'm not alone, Liz. All right, nonetheless, <laughs> this is like constantly like, and I know, I know, Liz is right. Okay, she is totally right. I've read the articles. It's been proven logically why the data is there, and I know I'm not going to get sick, but you know what? I just can't. I don't care. Right? I'm not, I, I don't care. I'm just not going to do it. Right? It's so ingrained in me. But I, I can't change. It feels like I can't change, right? Even the logic of it, all the articles, you could be the best doctor in the world. You could put the, the stamp on there, right? And I'm still going to be like, I'm sorry, okay? You might feel that way about mercy right now. 
retaliation, justice, is so ingrained in you that you're like, okay, it might be logical because the example of Jesus, but I just can't bring myself to eat the food. I can't do it. So how do you do it? It's given to you in verse 9. It's, it's amazing. This kind of feels out of place, but it's so strategic here. Well, look at this. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. That's his whole point. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Such were some of you. You see what he just did? He holds up a photograph to the church. He's like, do you remember this? Do you remember who you used to be before God gave you a makeover? Remember? Some of you were sexually immoral. You just did whatever you wanted with your body. Some of you were idolaters. You literally might have gone to the temple of Artemis. Calvin famously said, even for us, our hearts are idol factories. Like we give our hearts to anything and everything, it seems like, other than God. He says, some of you were adulterers. You went out and you actually had an affair on your spouse. He says, some of you practice homosexuality. Be very clear, it doesn't say that you had same-sex attraction. That's not stated here as a sin. I'm sure we'll get into that at the beginning of the year, I imagine. But he says, some of you gave into your desires for other people. And they weren't even your own spouse. They weren't even your own gender. So some of you were thieves. You took things that weren't rightfully yours. Some of you were greedy. You weren't content. You always wanted more. Remember that? Some of you were drunks. You were constantly abusing alcohol. You were abusing it all the time in order to escape your fears and your stresses in life. Some of you were revilers. You'd always attack people with your words in order to wound them, not heal them. Some of you were swindlers. You scammed. You manipulated people in order that they lose and you win. Right? This is who you used to be. Do you remember that? What's his point? Well, his, his first point, which is not the primary one, but it needs to be said, is realize if you look through this list, which is not an exhaustive list at all of sin, and his point isn't to try to get into every sin. He's just trying to like point out who you were. But do you notice, I could make a case that every single one of these sins here affects somebody else. I mean, some of these obviously, like adultery, you created a grievance in your marriage, right? There's conflict now. But all these, if we had time, I could flesh these out and you would see how these create conflict in every sort of relationship. And so if the mirror is being held up to these people and all of our sin creates conflict in some way or another with someone else, whether it's acute or broad, then what's his point, at least here? This will be on the screen. There's a gospel principle here when it comes to conflict. Hold up the photograph. The moment there's conflict in your relationship, in your marriage, even your parenting, in your roommate situation, at work, whatever it is, step one, gospel principle, suspect yourself. Do you remember who you were? Like, you're not, like, removed from this. You're not perfect. First step in the gospel principle of conflict is suspect yourself. Step two is inspect yourself. 
Like, where am I? How am I contributing to this? All right, so this is like a gospel principle here. Suspect yourself, follow that with inspecting yourself. But the main point here, okay, this is the main point. And this is the main point here is, yes, sin often is a grievance against somebody else. But in God's eyes, in the Bible, when you read the Bible, we see that our sin is always, always, always first and foremost against God. That our sin creates a grievance between you and God every time. So be on the screen. Uh, it's a prayer out of the Valley of Vision. It says, it's just really convicting. It says, let me never forget that the heinousness of sin lies not so much in the nature of the sin committed as in the greatness of the person sinned against. God. Next slide should, should show you Psalm 51.4. And this is a psalm or a prayer that David prays after he sleeps with Bathsheba and pregnates her and then kills her husband. So just to try to cover this thing up. And what does he say? Against Uriah have I sinned? No, against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. If you're asking these questions, like, how can this be? You might say that when you cheated someone else, when you wronged someone else, that to you it just seemed like you wronged that person. How, how can it be that when you sin, you create conflict with somebody else, but primarily there's a grievance against God? How can this be? Well, let's put it to you this way. In our house, we have a rule no hitting. It's a pretty good rule, wouldn't you say? We disagree? Just don't hit people, okay? If I told my son not to hit my other son, which is a rule in our house, and these kids, they're perfect, right? They're so always kind. This never happens. Hypothetically, one of my sons hits the other son, okay? And let's just imagine, okay, that he goes to hit his brother, and when he does that, he even looks at me, and then he hits him, Right? Would you say that he primarily sinned against his brother or me? Well, he definitely sinned against his brother. He hurt him. But who even, like, designed the, the house and the layout and the rules for the house? I did. And I just told him not to do that. My son has just sinned against me. He has just wronged me by doing that. You see, in the act of sin, you are consciously or even unconsciously at times looking at God and saying, you know what, God, I want to live however I want to live, and I don't care what you have to say about it. The Bible says that's sin. If God says, love that person, and you say, no, I'm going to withhold my love from that person, and I'm actually going to desire to see their demise and their downfall. That's not merely an offense against somebody else. That's an offense against God because it's God that revealed his will for how he has designed life and for you to live and flourish in it. So here's the thing, guys. Here's the thing. If our sin is against God, if our actions and participation in a list like this are not first against another person, but they're fundamentally against God, if you see that, then let's just see how God has treated us. If I have created a multitude of grievances against God, how has God responded to me? I mean, remember, such were some of you, such was Josh. How has God treated me? What does verse 11 carry on with? God took you to court. God let you have it. He went out seeking to repay you for all your wrongs against him. Right? He, he complained and he had gossiped about you to everybody else. No way. Do you remember? What does it say? He didn't retaliate. He washed you. You were washed. 
Do you remember how you were washed? Not in like bath water, but hopefully you're doing that too. You were washed in the blood of the Lamb, Jesus. Not only your example, but your Savior, your sacrifice. God responded to your grievances, your conflict with God, with his own costly sacrifice. But he didn't stop there. It says you were sanctified. You were guaranteed that at any moment, if you were to pass away right now, you would be made to look like Christ in all of his holiness and his perfection. But he didn't stop there. You were justified. How? It says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God, you now stand before God guilt-free in the right, no condemnation. How? Because God didn't put you on the stand. He didn't take you to court. No, he put Jesus there for you. Because now you stand before God with Jesus' clothes on. With him is the ground beneath your feet and the Spirit of God pounding in your chest. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. All things that are what? If you're an English major, what are those verbs? They're passive, aren't they? Right? Stuff that's happened to you. You didn't make it happen for yourself. Stuff happened to you. It wasn't justice, though. It was grace. It wasn't retaliation. It was mercy. It wasn't hate. It was love. And such were some of you. And such were some of you. I think those might be the most powerful words in conflict. I wonder how different our conflicts with each other would be if we embraced the words of Oscar Wilde, who wasn't a great man in his life, but converted to Christianity late in his life. This will be on the screen. He says, every saint has a past, and every sinner has a future. It was Oscar Wilde. I think most of the time when we're wronged, we forget that we have a past. It just kind of goes out the window. And whoever it is that we're in conflict with, we desire to ruin whatever it is that they hope their future is. With our gospel glasses on, when the gospel seeps into your veins, your heart begins to beat with like a melody of mercy, you guys. When you put those gospel glasses on, you see yourself differently, you see others differently, and you will handle conflict differently. You will. And how you handle it, the world might look at you and say, that's foolish. But Jesus looks at you and goes, no, I paved that path. Just keep walking it. When you experience the mercy of God, guys, towards you, I think you'll be unable to approach conflict without the gospel shaping it. And so my plea this morning to us as a church is that we would let the gospel shape our approach to conflict, that we'd go to the right people, that we would inherit a category for mercy and not just a category for defending our rights. And that we would do both of those things because we would remember every time such were some of you, but you were washed. If you guys will, let's all stand together as we go into our time of response. Guys, as we come forward, we take the communion meal together every single week if you're a follower of Jesus. And I want you to know these tables are open to you if you're a follower of him. And this morning when you come, I want you to come and to take the communion meal, the bread and the cup, uh, whenever you're ready to do it on your own. And just remember that this morning as you take this meal, we are remembering that Jesus suffered wrong so that your relationship with God might be reconciled. 
when you take this meal this morning, we remember that our wrongs were actually grievances against God. And this meal is a reminder that he responded to those grievances by washing you. When you take this meal, you're saying, I am washed, I am sanctified, I am justified. This is a table of mercy. Let's, let's bask in that mercy this morning as you respond.